Uh, We pick up where we left off in Colossians 3. We come to this transition point in Paul's letter. I pointed this out two weeks ago. uh, Where we move from the doctrinal truths about who God is and what God has done into the more practical truths. What do we now do about what God has done and who God has made us to be? Uh, This is a key distinction in Paul's letter. It's actually a key distinction of the gospel. What we do always flows from who we are. And who we are flows from who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. So you always have the imperative, what we do, flowing from the indicative, who we are. And it comes out in Paul's letters. It comes out of the gospel. So far, Paul has laid a clear and compelling case for the supremacy, the sufficiency of Jesus above all other things, mainly the false teaching that was going on in the Colossian church that he dealt with in chapter 2 when he begins to crush their false teaching with the gospel. And so we come into chapter 3. Let's reread verses 1 through 4 and then get to our text today where we'll see that because of our union with Christ, we are a part of a new humanity who kill sin in us. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there, is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Father, we are thankful that because of Jesus, we can call you Father. We can call you Father. You call us son and daughter. That's mind-blowing. When we once were your enemies, you've adopted us into your family. Help us to not lose sight of that as we live this Christian life, as we study your word, as we worship you as one family this morning. And Father, we ask you to come and speak to our hearts through this passage. Teach us what you would have us to, to know changes in ways that only you can change us so that only you get the credit and glory. And no man, no church can take credit for what only you can do. Father, our hearts go out, especially to Emmanuel AME in Charleston, South Carolina, as they gather to worship this morning with grieving, broken hearts. As we come face to face again with evil that is in our world. We thank you that you have crushed evil, sin, and Satan on the cross. And we're thankful that one day you're coming back to make all things new and there will be no more evil, sin, and Satan. We're thankful for this body in Charleston that is demonstrating the gospel and the way they're dealing with this. We pray that you continue to encourage them and equip them and 
and allow them to do that and surround them with brothers and sisters to let them know, especially from white Christians, they are family. They are loved. Father, we praise you for making all this possible. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'll put together a list of uh, five truths that we see in this passage. They don't rhyme. They don't all start with the same letter, but they're truth. So that'll have to be good enough. Number one, sin is present in the life of a believer. Sin is present in the life of a believer. Paul's writing to believers telling them to put to death the sin that is in them. If we, if we, we saw in chapter 2, we've died with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, so much so that Paul would say in verse 4 of chapter 1 that when Christ appears, we will appear with Him in glory. If that is true, then why is sin still present in us? We walk through chapter 1 identifying all the names that Paul uses when he refers to these Christians. Chapter 1, verse 2, he calls them saints and faithful brothers. Chapter 1, verse 12, qualified ones. Verse 13, delivered ones. Verse 22, reconciled ones. Verse 22, uh, 23, holy, blameless, and above reproach. In Ephesians, we're called holy, blameless, adopted ones, and blessed ones. Even the dumpster fire that was the Corinthian church, they're called saints. So which is it? Are we holy, blameless saints or are we sinners? This is where it's helpful to learn the theological phrase already but not yet. We have used this before because of the gospel. Our standing, our identity is rooted in Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. And so we are already, because of our union with Christ, holy, blameless, above reproach, righteous in God's eyes through Christ. Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything Christ has done and our union by God's grace through faith in Him. But we are not yet experiencing the fullness of that. Experiencing the fullness of holiness and blamelessness and righteousness. Practically, it's not something we, we're experiencing. One day we will, but not in this life. What has happened inside of us. We, we were born with the sin nature, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us. We're born with a bent towards sin, a bent away from God, a rebellious heart. We inherit because we're human. But God makes us alive in Christ. He's raised us up spiritually, Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9. By grace, through faith, we get a new nature, the new man, so much so that Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we are new creations in Christ. We're new people. In fact, in our passage in, in, in Colossians 3, verse 10, it says we're a new humanity where the image of God is being reformed and refashioned inside of us. So, so then, why do we sin? For this new creation, holy, blameless saints, why do we sin? Because our flesh that is infected with the curse of sin that we're born with, not, not body, don't think physical body, Flesh is not always the physical body. Flesh is that sin nature that we're born with. The language the New Testament uses, we have the old man, but now we also have the new man. Our old man, the flesh, is still present, but that part of us that is bent towards sin is still with us, but the new man is also present, is also alive inside of us. And so we have these dueling natures. You see this come out in certain passages like Romans seven fifteen through 20. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do not... Uh, Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Maybe a little bit more clear, Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Like this wire is opposed to me right now, so our flesh is opposed to the spirit that is alive inside of us. And so this dueling battle is going on inside of us. And our response, Paul tells us, is to fight. To put sin to death. This is is when murder is okay. This is when killing is okay. When it refers to the sin that's inside of us. Admitting that, that we can still sin. Admitting that there is sin still in us. Helps us guard against maybe the indulgent attitude. That says in our culture, if you want it, go get it. If you desire it, you can have it. The, the indulgent culture that says it's not sin if it makes you feel better. If it makes you more accepted, then just do it. That's not sin. And it helps us guard against the legalist attitude that checks all the boxes of behavior. And because I have more boxes of behavior checked in my life than other people around me, then I'm really not really much of a sinner. Because I'm doing better than the people that I'm comparing myself to. Both the indulgent and the legalist don't see their sin. Because they're giving in to their flesh or they're comparing themselves to others around them. And so... When you talk about sin in your life, sometimes the indulgent and the legalist just kind of shrug their shoulders and be like, it's not really that big of a deal. My sins are not really that big of a deal. A quick test to find out if this may be you. When was the last time you, in prayer, confessed specific sins, repented of specific sins? Like you called them out and named them. This is what I did specifically. This is who I sinned against specifically. Often those who are most apathetic about their sin in their own life never deal with it, never confess it, never admit it's there. But the New Testament is clear. There is still sin in you, and we must put it to death. Martin Luther said that all of life is repentance. This doesn't mean we only repent when we feel bad about the things we've done or when we suffer the consequences of our sins. We repent continually because sin is continually in us. And we care. Like we care about our sins. We care about them. Sometimes one of the negative side effects of people who are so strongly gospel-centered and so strongly on the grace of God like, like us One of the negative unintended side effects is we almost create a people who just don't care about sin. It's all covered. I'm good. I'm accepted in Christ's eyes. So it doesn't matter about sin. And it does matter about the sins we still commit. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. On account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. Now, Now get this. We who are in Christ, 
will never be under God's judgment or condemnation. For there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1 tells us. We're free from that because we're in Christ. But God's wrath will still be poured out on sin for those who are not in Christ. And God's wrath is a good description for how God feels about sin. When you hear God's wrath, don't think like out of control rage or anger like the Incredible Hulk. He just, he can't control it. God's just on the loose. He's just knocking out people, killing people left and right. He has no control over his rage. That's not God's wrath. God's wrath is terrifying, but it is a settled disposition. Because he's holy and righteous, it is his natural settled disposition against sin and evil. And therefore, because God is holy, he must judge sin. In the life of a believer, God does this through discipline. He disciplines those he loves. But in the non-believer, God does this through wrath. Either passive wrath, where God just lets us chase things that we love and desire more than him, or active wrath, which is what non-believers will experience for eternity in hell. Because God must judge sin, He poured out His wrath for sin on His Son on the cross, like we just sang, so that those who are in His Son would be spared God's wrath. Either Jesus pays for your sins on the cross, or you pay for your sins for all of eternity. If you're a non-Christian today, it's that simple of a choice. Jesus willingly, lovingly took on your sins on the cross and suffered the wrath of God in a horrible way so that you wouldn't have to pay for your sins or you reject that offer salvation and you suffer for your sins for all of eternity separated from God in a place called hell. How does God feel about sin? Look at Jesus on the cross. Look at hell. That's how God feels about sin. And because we are His children, we care about sin. We hate sin that's inside of us. So my first prayer for us this morning is that no one sitting here would be able to sit and shrug their shoulders at the sin that's inside of them. That we would be properly broken over sin. Not to hate ourselves, but to hate our sins. To hate our sins. Secondly, sin can be killed in the life of a believer. Sin can be killed in the life of a believer. Here's the good news. Sin can be killed. <clears throat> I mean, maybe for you that's like common sense. No, duh. Right, I get that. But for me, I don't ever remember hearing that, that we really had power over sin growing up in the church. I was married listening to a, a pastor preach about the, the, the possibility of saying no to sin. I'm sure it was preached. Grew up in the church, heard 10,000 sermons, but I don't remember it emphasized. And so I'm here to, to tell you this morning that sin can be killed in, the, in your life. I don't know if that's a common message. I had a conversation with a guy a few years ago who was excusing away his racism. That's just the way I've always been. That's something God will have to take care of in me when I get to heaven. Whoa. I hope you're there. And that's, that's probably one of the scariest places to be this morning, to knowingly have sin in your life, to be unrepentant about it, and to not care about it. That may be the greatest evidence that you aren't truly born again. 
I've heard other people say, well, we all have our little habits. There's not really much you can do about it. I've heard, you know, we're not going to be perfect, so why even care, right? Why get into a big fuss about it? Why really worry about it? Since we can't be perfect, why even try and deal with the sin that's in us? And the Bible would say, no, sin is serious. Sin required the life of Christ. One sin brought death, chaos into creation. There's no sin in your life that hasn't already been crushed by Jesus Christ on the cross. Because of Paul, because of that, Paul can say, put to death what is earthly in you. Kill sin. In fact, Paul says, this is not even who you are anymore. This is who you used to be. These are the sins that used to define your life. It's how you used to live life, but you're different now. You've been changed by the gospel. So do away with this old way of living and acting by killing sin. I want to encourage us this morning, especially if you have patterns of sin and habits in your life that you think will define your entire life. You don't think you're ever going to be free from these patterns of sin or, or whatever the sin may be, these patterns of temptation that you just can't overcome. I want to encourage you this morning to see that you can put that sin to death because Christ has already crushed it on the cross. It doesn't have to define your life, your entire life. You can overcome it. You can walk in victory over that particular sin. Now, this always have balance here, right? We don't want to get in the ditch. We want to stay on the road. This does not lead and will not lead to sinless perfectionism, as some teach. You're, you're still going to sin, right? But it doesn't have to be that sin that's driving you crazy right now. The battle can change in frequency and intensity. Where right now you feel crushed by that sin. But maybe a, a few weeks from now, months or a year from now, you, you, you say, you know what? I see more victory than defeat when it comes to that particular sin in my life. Become more of a battle of your mind and heart. By the way, those who teach that you can live a sinlessly perfect life don't understand the nature of sin. They don't know how pervasive sin is in us. They think you can be sinless because they've developed a list that you can check off and they have more of their list checked off than other people. And so they're sinless compared to other people totally missing dozens of sins of omission and self-righteousness that they're committing all the time. I remember I was a Christian for about three years when I hit the wall of frustration over my sins. I couldn't be perfect, so I just quit. I quit trying. I quit fighting. I had begun to hate myself for my failures and my sins, and I wasn't hating my sin. And God graciously, as He always does, came after me and called me back and pursued me and began to show me that it didn't have to be that way. That it, it, just because sin and temptation was present in my life doesn't mean, didn't mean I wasn't, wasn't a Christian. It was my response to sin and temptation that was more crucial than whether I was perfect. And the call was to fight. And the call to fight would last my entire life and the battle would never end. The, the battle could change. The types of sins I could fight could change. And I can you know, be more specific and tell you how that has changed in my life. And I would imagine for many of us who have been walking with Jesus for a certain amount of time, you could speak about that. The progress of sanctification, where by God's grace, you're not who you're going to be one day, but you're not who you used to be. You're being changed. You're being transformed. Thank God for His grace to help us fight sin. So take heart. If you're, if you're overwhelmed by the battle, Christ has won the victory. 
And he's going to help you every step of the way. Thirdly, we work the hardest against killing sin in ourselves. We work the hardest against killing sin in ourselves. Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. And then Paul walks through this two list of sins. And sometimes we in the church can do, be really good about being armchair moralists about other people's lives. Well, as you walk through these sins, I can name names about people I know who are struggling with these sins. Don't do that. Today, we are looking individually in the mirror of God's Word. And so Paul will list these sins in verse uh, 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And in verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. In verse 9, lying. Sexual immorality is kind of a blanket term in the New Testament that refers to any kind of sexual sin outside of marriage. Sex was created by God, not only for procreation, but for pleasure between a husband and a wife. Sex is enjoyable and should be enjoyable between a husband and a wife, unless there are physical complications where that's not possible. And therefore, God intends for us to have a vibrant, enjoyable sex life as a married couple. We, we don't say this enough in the church, right? Most of us grew up in churches where the only time that we talked about sex was when they told us, don't do it. Wait until you're married. We never heard how amazing it was and how it's worth waiting for. How this is an incredible act of intimacy between two people that God has put together in His sovereign will and is to be enjoyed. It's pleasurable. It's wonderful. It's just taboo. Don't, don't talk about it. Just don't do it. Now, it's certainly not all that marriage is. Marriage is far more than, than sexual intimacy, but it is a huge part of being intimate and close to that person that you're closer to than any other person on the face of the earth. As amazing as God intends for sex and marriage to be, so also anything outside of marriage is grievous and sinful. And by the way, God's definition of marriage has been and will always be one man and one woman. That has been consistent since the garden. No matter where our culture goes or where the laws of our land go, God has not redefined marriage. As John Piper has said, there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. It's just sexual immorality. And that sin can also be put to death along with heterosexual couples who are engaging in sexual immorality. Impurity, passions are both commonly used in reference to sexual sin in the New Testament. Evil desires, covetousness are more general types of sins, although they can also refer to sexual sin. It is possible that Paul is trying to help us to see how these five sins flow out of that last phrase in verse 5, which is idolatry. So idolatry leads to all of these sins. It's possible he was trying to say that. Even if that's not his intention, it is true, as we'll see in a little bit. Paul then gives us this, this uh, second list, the second list, anger. We could use an entire sermon on anger. We've got a series of sermons on anger. Interestingly, it's Father's Day, and these two main lists of sins deal with sexual immorality and anger, which are the two sins that plague fathers and men more than any other sins. Anger is a very interesting emotion because it's, it's not always a sinful emotion. Anger can be used for good. Anger can drive 
uh, beneficial action on, the, on behalf of others. But obviously in this context it's sinful because it's accompanied by wrath and malice. Paul's concern, which probably flows out of the influence of the false teachers in the church, was the overly critical and hurtful speech about each other in the church. Words of anger about their brothers and sisters. Words of slander where they would defame each other. Obscene talk, shameful words about each other. Even lying in verse 9. These all speak of interpersonal relationships. How we speak to others about others in our relationships. When our words are characterized by anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscenity, lying, Jesus would say there's something wrong with your heart. Matthew 15, out of the abundance of our heart, our mouth speaks. Your words reveal what's in your heart. Our enemy is the accuser. Our enemy is the slanderer. Our enemy is the liar, the father of lies. And when we speak out of anger, wrath, malice, slander, um, uh, lying, we are speaking the words of the enemy to those around us. We're doing his work. Now, in our culture, we may cherish this because we call it, well, you're speaking your mind and you're being blunt, you're venting. And and while we're supposed to be honest and real, we we certainly are not supposed to cross that line into being rude, angry, malicious, and slanderous about others. Especially, especially when we're not speaking what we know to be true about people, but when we're speaking what we assume to be true. Instead, our words, Ephesians 4.29 are to be good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Guys, imagine a family whose words to each other and about each other were always edifying, building up good for them. Imagine being that family. This is where God's bringing us so that anyone who encounters anyone who's a part of the Crossing Church would never hear us say anything that could be characterized as anger, wrath, malice, slander, lying about another brother or sister. In the Crossing Church or any, anywhere in life, you, you think that could become intoxicating to our, our city? A family that treats each other like that and speaks about each other and speaks to each other like that? Now, whether the sin you struggle with was explicitly listed or whether it falls into the kind of the vague category, whatever is earthly in you, it's still included and must be dealt with in ourselves first. We in the church are good to hear messages like this. And sometimes we all all we're doing is thinking about, I know somebody who needs to hear this. I wish they were here today. You need this first. This is for you. This is for me. This helps us guard against hypocritical judging. In the famous passage that everyone in our culture loves to quote, do not judge, Matthew 7, Jesus is not saying don't discern and make decisions about people's actions and behavior. He's guarding and helping to warn us against hypocritical judging. Because in verse 6 of Matthew 7, right after he says do not judge, see the, the plank that is in your own eye before you see the speck in your brother's eye. He tells us to not give what is holy to dogs and not throw what is cast our, our pearls before swine. So we have to be discerning of other people's actions and the fruits that they're bearing. But Jesus wants us to not engage in hypocritical judging where we ignore our flaws and all we see are other people's flaws. 
And so dealing with our own sins first is essential to do that. This is what the Pharisees were great at, hypocritical judging. You saw that in the passage that Scott read at the beginning of the service in Luke 7. Simon, the Pharisee, saw the sins of this woman worshiping Jesus and completely missed his own sins, his lack of hospitality and love for Jesus. And so this morning, don't let your mind wander to those who need to deal with these sins first. It's you. It's me. Fourthly, fourthly, our union with Christ is the basis of us killing our sins. Our union with Christ is the basis of us killing our sins. So how do we do this? What does killing sin look like? Whether it be uh, one of the sins mentioned explicitly or, or implicitly. The first step is two steps, real simple. The first step is to confess sin. Confess means to agree. To agree with God about the sin he sees in us. To agree with God that that sin is there and that sin is what it is in us. We have this tendency to downplay, redefine, and justify our sins. It's not sexual immorality. It's how God created me. I'm hardwired to do that. I have needs that need to be met. It's not anger. I'm just flustered. Busy, got a lot going on, just kind of, uh, just, uh, you know, not really sinning in anger. I'm not lying, I'm just, I'm just saying enough that it's not explicitly lying. I'm just not telling you everything, right? Confession, agreeing with God, exposes our sins as what they are. Part of our old nature, on account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. So confession not only is admitting we are guilty for that sin, that particular sin, but confession gets to the heart by exposing the idolatry behind the sin. Fighting against sin is not behavior modification. You want to quit lusting and committing sexual immorality, so you put filters on your computers, you put accountability software on your devices, you have brothers who ask you questions and check into your life, and you may be naturally a more disciplined person than somebody else. So you have, through external measures, modified your behavior so that you're not committing that sin as much as you used to, but if you never deal with the heart of idolatry behind the sin then what's going to happen is you're going to become very self-righteous about how disciplined you've controlled your life so that you're no longer committing that sin. And why can't more people do what I do? And I can tell you how to fix that sin. Just follow my steps. Or if you try all these external measures to quit committing these sins and you fail, you're going to be in this roller coaster of despair and anxiety. Despair and anxiety. So what happens if you simply deal with your sins externally, you don't get to the heart of idolatry, is you exchange one sin for another sin. You exchange self-righteousness, despair, anxiety for the sin that you're trying to get rid of if you don't get to the heart of idolatry behind the sin. Truly killing sin is confessing the actual sin and confessing the idolatry behind it. We all have idols. We all create idols in our hearts. All sin in our life flows from either not believing God's truth, so I'm committing these sins of sexual morality because I just don't agree with God that it's a sin to do those things. And so here's God's word coming to say, no, it is sinful to have those kind of relations with people outside of marriage. Or 
We commit sin because we don't believe God's truth or because we love something more than God, which is idolatry. We're loving and worshiping something more than God. Tim Kello uses a line from a Rocky movie, the original movie back in 1976. Rocky's getting ready to fight Apollo Creed. And he's talking to Adrian, and he tells Adrian that he wants to go the distance with Apollo. He says, no one has ever gone the distance with Creed. But if I go the distance, then I'll know I'm not a bum. I know that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. And we all have things in our life that we are chasing so that we can prove to ourselves or others that we're not a bum. That we are somebody. And we have value and worth. We all have things we're chasing to prove and justify who we are. And if we don't get it, we are crushed and we run to sin. And often it's a pleasure sin, like sexual immorality, or we medicate ourselves with TV, food, exercise, prescription drugs, illegal drugs, alcohol. Or we lash out in anger and dominate people because we're afraid we're going to be discovered that we're just a bum. And our idols are crushing us. And so what are you chasing? What are you chasing this morning? Many times we're chasing things that aren't sinful in themselves, but we elevate them so that we begin to worship those things more than than God and they become our idols. We're loving them more than Jesus. It could be success. We want to be viewed as success in our jobs, as a parent, as a spouse, as a student. We want others to see us as successful, as not being bums. What What are you relying on more than Jesus for your identity, your hope, your joy? Guys, I'm praying for us this morning. I'm I'm asking right now for the Holy Spirit of God to work and expose the idols of our hearts. What are you chasing? What drives your emotion? What brings you your greatest joy? What causes your greatest anxieties and fears? This is how you identify the idols that are behind the sins. Fighting against sin, killing sin, confessing the actual sin and the idols behind our sin... And then once we expose them, once we unmask our sins and our idols, then we move on to step two, which is repentance. Repentance. We often think of repentance in terms of what we do when we've done something bad and now we're suffering the consequences of the bad thing that we've done. But repentance is is not just remorse over the bad things we do. Repentance is consistently, constantly turning from sin, turning from idols to Jesus and the gospel. Repentance is going continually, daily to the cross to deal with the sins and the idols that are always in us. You never wake up and have a day where your idols aren't there. Every day we preach the gospel to ourselves. Every day we have to remind ourselves that we're saved. We have to ask the Spirit of God to convince us again that we're really His. And so every day you take your idols and you take your sins to the cross. This is the basis of our killing sin. There in verse 5, Paul says, put to death, therefore. You know that word, therefore. You always look back to what Paul said before that. So in light of verses 1 through 4, we looked at two weeks ago, for us to live above the fray, for us to live and experience the reality of Christ in our life, we have to seek the things that are above. We have to set our minds on things that are, that are lofty, not on things that are on the earth. Why do we look up? We look up because it tells us in verse 1 through 4 that that's where Christ is. 
Christ is up there. And our union is with Christ. So we've been crucified with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. We've been risen with Christ. We're going to appear one day with Christ. Because of our unity with Christ, we share in what Christ provided through His death, life, death, burial, and resurrection. We experience what Christ provided. As I said two weeks ago, what is true of Christ is true of us, which is why God sees us in Christ as righteous, holy, and blameless. So repentance is taking our sins to the cross, continually being reminded of how Jesus dealt with our sins by crushing them. Guys, this is the key to repentance. And I'm, I'm praying this morning, I'm asking that your mind and your heart don't go somewhere when you're, you're talking about sin so often that we just feel beat up in, in churches and you feel crushed by churches. And I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, don't do that. Don't, don't go to despair this morning when you're thinking about your sins. Don't be crushed by your sins and think about how sorry and pathetic you are. That's not repentance. Repentance is not feeling sorry or in despair about how sucky we are as Christians and how sorry sinners we are. That's simply remorse over the consequences of your sins. That's you feeling bad because of the bad things you've done. That's not repentance. We hate ourselves instead of hating our sins. True repentance is not hating the consequences of our sin, but hating the sin because of what that sin caused our Savior to have to do. We hate the sin and not ourselves because it's our sin that caused Jesus to have to die for them. It's because of how God feels about our sins that leads us to hating sin and wanting to kill it. A writer from years ago, Stephen Tronick, he said it's like this, it's the difference between seeing God's judgment and wrath against sin and in fear we repent because we're worried about that God who's judge, judgeful and wrathful overwhelming us with his judgment. Or true repentance is seeing God's goodness and love and mercy and repenting because this Good God suffered for our sin. He says it like this. An evangelically convinced person cries, I have incensed the goodness that is like the dropping of a dew. I have offended a God that had his hands stretched out to me as a friend. My heart must be made of marble My heart must be made of iron to throw his blood in his face. And when you see how your sin has affected God, you feel bad. But not in a bad way where you hate yourself. You feel bad in a good way because now you hate sin. This is what Jesus pointed to in the woman in Luke 7. When he gave that parable to Simon about he who's being forgiven little forgives little, he's been forgiven much forgives much, she experienced deep joy because she experienced deep repentance because she had been forgiven for so much. Simon, on the other hand, was self righteous. He did not see how much he sinned nor how offensive he was to God, and he was forgiven little. And Simon had little joy. 
See the depths of your sins. See the prices paid willingly, lovingly for your sins by Jesus. Turn from your sins to Jesus and receive full forgiveness. Receive full acceptance. Receive full joy because he has fully and totally, completely crushed all your sins on the cross. And you have to see this every day, all through the day, to walk in repentance and joy. And then lastly, killing sin characterizes the new humanity Christ is creating. This is is part of who we are. Killing sin characterizes the new humanity Christ is creating. This video that's been going around of the victims, families in the Charleston shooting that were confronting this killer in the courtroom and speaking words of forgiveness over him. Several years ago, it was the Amish schoolgirls who were killed and the Amish families who were speaking forgiveness to the killer's family. Our world is... What is that? Who does that? Let me get in a room with him and tell him how I really feel. And so there is a place of justice. Don't get me wrong. But personally, we don't take offense. We give forgiveness. It's what makes us peculiar to our world, but also attractive to our world. Look at the distinctiveness in verse 10 and 11. And we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We'll get more into the characteristics of this new life in two weeks that we put on that he, he continues with in the rest of the passage. But this new life is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And, and, and this image that we were created with, this image of God, this image that's marred by sin, but in Christ we're new creations and that image of God's being restored. As we grow in the knowledge of Christ Jesus, knowledge here not speaking of intellectual knowledge. Sometimes the Bible uses knowledge in that way, but that's not here. Knowledge can also be speaking of experiential knowledge, something you experience. It's a difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. Like we all know about Abraham Lincoln, but nobody knows Abraham Lincoln. We know Jesus Christ. And the more we grow in that kind of knowledge, walking with Jesus, listening to Jesus, loving Jesus, having Jesus work in us, the more the image of God is being recreated in us, the more we're becoming what God originally has intended for us to become. I mean, our mission to the world is to go and make disciples, but another way of looking at our mission to the world is to go and see the image of God recreated in the image bearers. And that's what happens. That's what, we, that's what many of us get to experience. This new identity, this union with Christ. This, this begins to define us more than any other quality or description that, that we use to define us. So in Christ, being in Christ is more defining than being Jew or Greek or uncircumcised or circumcised or slave or free or barbarian or Scythian. These were common dividing lines in the Greco-Roman first century. No doubt these were dividing lines experienced and causing tension in the Colossian church. Always there were tensions between the Jews and the Greeks or the Gentiles, or another way of saying it, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Another lesser known distinction was between the barbarians and the Scythians. Barbarian, literally in the Greek, barbar. That's how the highly intellectual Greeks viewed the barbarians. They would just run around saying bar, 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 bar all the time, so they called them barbarians. Think of animals and the Muppets, you know, the drummer, if you, if you know the Muppets. 
Love the Muppets. Scythians were the most barbaric of the barbarians. Think of the Urukai in Lord of the Rings. Greek historian Herodotus said this about them. Uh, the, the Scythians lived in wagons. They offered human sacrifices, scalping and sometimes flaying slain enemies, drinking their blood, using their skulls for drinking cups. When a king dies, one of his concubines is strangled and buried with him. And at the close of a year, 50 of his attendants are strangled, disemboweled, mounted on dead horses, and left in a circle around his tomb. Good. That's good. Can't even make a movie about that. It's so crazy. But instead of all these class distinctions, now we are one in Christ. Christ defines us, guys. Christ defines us more than any of those things. So for us, maybe in our context, it would read like this. Here there is not Monroe or West Monroe, urban or rural, college graduate or high school graduate, white or black or Latino or Asian, blue collar or white collar. Deborah Drive or Balcomville, public school, private school, homeschool, stay-at-home mom or working mom, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, but Christ is all and in all. This is so important, not only to the body of Christ, but to the crossing church. Uh, it's even represented in our, our, our furniture, right? Diversity and unity. We don't have all these crazy seats because we're poor and we don't, we're just taking whatever people give us. I mean, that's part of it. And, or because we think it looks neat. That's part of it too. But really we want to demonstrate diversity and unity. The thing that unites us, Jesus, the scriptures, the gospel, no matter what direction our culture takes, we stay true to that. That's always the most essential. We die for that. But everything else, secondary matters, man, we're open to crazy diversity. Ethnically, economically, educationally, and other barriers that we tend to erect instead of tearing down. Let's be so diverse that when our city encounters a crossing church, they have no possible explanation for why we would be one family. What brought all of you together? And one way we can do that is by being a people who hate sin, who love Jesus and the gospel, who fight to kill sin in ourselves, who help each other fight against and kill sin in each other's life. Guys, our greatest enemy is our flesh and Satan. Our flesh and Satan's weapon against us is sin. Jesus has conquered both sin, Satan, and death. And we get to experience that victory in our lives and experience a way of life that is only possible through the gospel. Where we're not victims, but we're victors. Let's experience that together that's why we have DNA groups men with men women with women fighting against sin in each other's lives a little over half of our DNA groups are meeting regularly they're moving in that direction guys it takes time to build relationships so that you can be open and honest and authentic with each other it takes time to learn how to preach the gospel to each other be patient as God is patient with you some of our groups aren't meeting Either it's too busy or you don't see the benefit. Or maybe you're frustrated because it's not producing the results in you that you want it to produce. Guys, we're not called to quit. We're called to fight. You can't fight this fight effectively alone. As we lovingly, lovingly prod you into DNA groups, receive that as love and engage. It's for your good. Fighting against sin, though, is not just a DNA thing or a crossing thing. 
This is part of our mission to our city and beyond. This is not for us to simply enjoy the sanctification we're experiencing and sit around and look at each other and pat each other on the back. Man, Joseph, look how much you're growing in Jesus. That's, that's great, man. Let's just keep talking about that. And, 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 and Bailey, look at you, how much you're growing in Jesus. That's so, it's not for us to pin awards and medals on each other for how great we're growing in Jesus Christ. It's for us to go and be sent to a city where most of the people in this city are enslaved to sin have not really heard the gospel and been set free from sin and have no idea how the gospel empowers us to overcome sin in our life. And they are being killed by sin every day. And God has put us here to be sent with this message. And we have it. And so let's go. Father, we're so thankful that Jesus has come to make this possible. It's it's why we sing about him. It's why we worship him. It's why we remember him through the blood and the the cup and the the bread. It's why we sacrifice our lives. It's to make Jesus known. It's because of what you've already done in us. We get to do this. And we're, we're just thankful, grateful. We want to respond in worship now. We want to sing from the, the bottom of our feet the top of our head with everything that's in us. We want to sing about who Jesus is. We want to remember his sacrifice at the table. And then we want to leave this place and go be the church. Father, I pray for anyone who who is here and has never come alive in Christ Jesus. They're not a Christian. They're not trusting in Jesus for their joy, their identity, their sanctification, their salvation. That you would call them to repent and believe. I pray for all of us in this room that we would live a life of repentance and faith and trust in Jesus. That we would hate sin and not hate ourselves and fight against sin because of what you've already done for us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to respond this morning. If you need someone to talk to, we can do that before you leave. If you have come alive in Christ this morning, tell somebody before you go, welcome to the family. We'd like to tell you more about Christ.